What's up, everybody? This is Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. Thank you to everybody who downloaded episode one. We appreciate all the positive feedback. This is episode number two with ITV's own David Eilenberg. I've known David for a number of years. He is one of the greatest people in our business. And it is not hyperbole to say that David has worked on some of the most iconic shows in the history of reality or unscripted television. That would be shows like Apprentice, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, Shark Tank, The Voice. David has done and seen it all. He has written. He has created shows. He has worked as the head of development for Mark Burnett. He has ran development for two cable networks. And now he finds himself back on the selling side at ITV. So we covered a lot of ground in this interview. We went through his entire career path. And we swapped some stories from some of the productions we had worked on together. So it was really just a great excuse for me to catch up with one of my favorite people uh, in the business. Uh, so this is episode number two with David Eilenberg. Hope you guys enjoy it. All right, so I have to start by asking you something. Please. I've known you for a few years now. How did you become so nice? Oh, that's I, not a I've always, fair question. I've always told people you are probably the most genuinely nicest person in our little pocket of the business, right? Is this like, were your parents the nicest people ever on earth? Or do you just fake it really, really well? It's a facade. I'm glad <laughs> that we can actually establish that now here on this podcast. Um, no, I think there's no reason to treat people with anything but respect and decency. Everybody has a hard job. And I think, I don't know, I think everybody should try to make TV better. So if there's a way to to do that collectively, I think it comes back around. I feel like more than anybody I've ever been in the trenches with, critical fires need to be put out on set. I feel like you've always been the one person that always has the perspective that as serious as this might seem right now, we are not saving lives here. You know, we're we're really just working in, even though it's non-scripted, we are really just working in a world of storytelling. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two sides to it. I mean, I think, of course, that's true. And, you know, we've chosen a profession where the objective is to entertain. So you do right. have to sort of understand that the stakes are not the same as, as for people in other, like, really serious life. Yes, with professions. consequences. It's why I try to stay away from, like, TV as war analogies, because it's really not... But I think at the same time, uh, trying to keep a cool head and trying to keep a dialogue also just mostly helps you through the challenges of, of unscripted TV yeah. nine times out of ten. I've rarely seen things resolved better by people losing their temper than by trying to keep an even keel. And you've been in some of the most pressure-packed shows. Yeah, I mean, I think reference. I also – I mean, I had the great good fortune to – produce on The Apprentice really early in my career for five seasons and, and doing the tasks on that show. And I, I just actually can't imagine a job more complicated and more pressure-filled in our part of the business than that. Yes, so, especially in the early days. Yeah, because we were really using the entire city of New York as our as our playing ground. There were enormous pressures both as it became a hit and then afterwards. And it's just a super, super complicated show to produce. So right. I think 
having been through some of the experiences I went through on that show, it's also given me a lot of perspective. Like if you can figure those problems out, you can figure most problems out. Right. Well, I want to definitely get into Apprentice and your okay. time working for Burnett. Yep. But let's, let's go back. So where did you grow up? I grew up mostly in the San Francisco Bay Area where my dad taught theater and still does at San Francisco State. So grew up huh. a lot backstage. Um, and I think, you know, that let's put on a show mentality is also something that's been very helpful. He teaches this. theater. So yes. was he ever a writer or director himself? In the Not theater? so much. No, he, he's a professor of theater and then has run um, theaters, so professional theaters in his life. My mom, who passed away when I was young, was an actress, and so I just come from, like, carny folk, basically, which is, I think, why I'm one of the very few people when I was like, I'm going to go into TV, the reaction from my family was like, thank God you're choosing something stable. <laughs> but you grew up in the Bay Area. Yep. So the Bay Area is already alternative enough. Correct. Uh, in terms of just a culture. Yeah. But you grew up around oh, yeah. theater folk. In the Bay Area. In the Bay Area. Yeah. Uh, it's about as far left on the political spectrum as you can possibly go in terms of an upbringing. Yeah. Did yeah. your dad remarry? Uh, he did, yes, and uh, and how, how quickly did you have to live through the single dad years? Um, I did some living through the single dad years, yeah, definitely. Um, was he dating actresses or or no, no? Although that would have been um, that would have been funny and something I could talk about in therapy since I went on to marry one myself. But um, but no. Well, they uh, say you marry your mother, right? Exact. Well, and there you go. So we've gone really deep, real fast in this right? podcast. Jimmy. Never saw that coming. Right? No, but yeah. So I grew up. I grew up in the Bay Area. I went to uh, Harvard for my undergrad, where I wrote for the Lampoon, and then, unlike everybody else on the Lampoon, somehow didn't end up writing for The Simpsons or Saturday Night Live. And now here we are in what, the basement of the Fairmont. What? Er <laughs> what? What era of that was for the Lampoon? Who was there at the time? So among my uh, sort of contemporaries there, and and still friends um, are uh, Mike Schur, who created uh, Parks who, and Recreation, who created Parks and Rec, and you know the Good Place Brooklyn Nine Nine, and yeah, yeah and um, Nick Stoller, who uh, wrote and directed Get Him to the Greek, sure. and Neighbors, Aton wow. um, Cohen, who wrote. Uh, who co-wrote um, *Idiocracy* and um, co-wrote and directed *Get Hard*? So it was a pretty talented bunch of people to be around, um, and people I've stayed in touch with over the years. I mean, I, I loved comedy and still love comedy. I know you're somebody who produces a lot with comedy in mind, and I had a couple of sort of um, forays into writing comedy professionally. I mean. My coolest credit by far, probably still, is I wrote on the Ollie G show in its second season, um, which was amazing. And How was young? Such a, fresh out of college? Not fresh out of college. No, I was by then in my sort of mid to late 20s okay. um, and had already been, you know, in the reality and game part of the biz, but just had that opportunity come about mostly actually through Nick. Huh. Um, so got to got a really fun way of That's getting unreal. those itches scratched. but. But I also think, like, we're at a moment right now in reality TV where we all have to be thinking about comedy a lot more. Right. Okay, so you, you go to Harvard. Yep. You said undergrad. Yes. So there was a So master's? then I went to – immediately went to grad school. I did a screenwriting MFA at USC. Um, and uh, and then And then did work as a writer for a while. I have scripts sitting on shelves of various studios. So Wait, so um, right out of college. So you go, you go through USC. Yep. 
you get your master's and then do you try to get an agent? Did you have a, a writing partner at that point? I did. I had a great writing partner named Tim Hedrick, who's okay. now the head writer on Voltron. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so he's had an awesome, totally different journey. Um, and we got really lucky. We were staffed very early on an MTV animated show uh, called Head Trip, which lasted for five minutes, but just sort of started us started us off. How did you guys get staffed? Was there a USC alum that was running the room? How did we, you guys get put up for it? It was through USC somehow, and we got submitted to the showrunner, who is himself now a reality showrunner, Mike huh. Nichols, who works for oh, sure. Craig Pelligian quite a lot. Yeah. But at the time, it was sort of an MTV guy. Wow. And, you know, I think, um, I think one of the great legacies of MTV in general is that it just takes chances on starting people. And and still does. But and by the I way, think, yeah. even though these shows are going to come out of order of how I recorded yeah. them, I'm like five interviews in, and MTV has been referenced. I think in four out of five. Yeah, my first actual job was uh, was writing on an MTV show, and then my first uh, sale as a creator was also an MTV show huh. with Mike and with Tim. We all co-created Dismissed, which actually like sure there were a lot of episodes of Dismissed. I didn't so. realize that you were a co-creator of Dismissed. Yes. So that was your first unscripted? That was my first unscripted sort of baby project as a as a co-creator. And I, that was that was, you know, obviously back in the day at a time where it was like the development could be, hey, it's blind date except it's three people and then one right. of them gets dismissed and then they're like sold. But, Sadly that doesn't happen. But how old so are you anymore. at this point? We were pretty young at that point. We were what in our like early to mid twenties, right? And you've got a how old are you? That's how old you are. I'm 34, <laughs> but I've got, I've, I've, I uh, I got I, but you have a creator title under yeah. your belt in your mid twenties. Yeah, at MTV, which is about the coolest place you could think to sell to at that point. It was pretty cool, although it was a it was a sort of winding road to get from that point back into a development capacity. Right. I mean, I would yeah. love to say. Oh, we did that, and then we platformed that credit into X, and then you know on to Y, and you but know often... come visit my private island. But that's not really how it worked. <laughs> um, you know what what happened then was I kept just trying to work as a writer and a producer. Yeah. Um, a lot on game shows early mm -hmm. on, so I had a really long and meaningful stint on The Weakest Link. If you sure. remember The Weakest Link, of course. Um, and it was really from. That era of NBC games. So, you know, uh, I worked for Stuart Krasnow and Phil Gurren on The Weakest Link. Matt Cunitz had Fear Factor at the time. Right. Um, and that was what really then started feeding into the big wave of reality as we now know Did you it. do uh, Deal or No Deal? I did not. That would have been a fun show to work on, but I think I was probably on The Apprentice at the time. At the time. Yeah. Got it. So, okay. So what was the first like real gig that got you into producing Unscripted? Was it Apprentice? Yes. That was my first actual gig. How did they come up? How did it come about? So, uh, Conrad Riggs and Ted Smith, who had already both been working with and for Mark, right. um, were folks that I knew. I knew Ted through a show called Dog Eat Dog. Sure. He introduced me to Conrad. It started as a two-week consulting gig for Justin Hochberg, who ran the department <laughs> that I worked for at the time. He then brought me back for uh, season two of the show, and then I worked on it full-time for four seasons. Okay, I've heard so many different stories okay, about, about the first season of Apprentice. I only – so 
Uh, while I how... worked on first season of yeah. Apprentice in some capacity, it was in LA coming up with tasks. So my right. stories are going to be boring by comparison, you know, to Justin's or Jay's or any of those folks. Right. I have great stories that I can't tell you from seasons two through five. No, I'm it's sure. It's a pretty crazy. Yeah. It was an amazing environment. No, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, first season of Apprentice, I think, you know, if you talk to the folks who, who worked on it in the field, um, it's not that they were making it up as they went along, but it was so audacious in terms of just saying, you know, yeah, New York City is our battleground. Right. Well, this uh, – and look, I'm not taking anything away from his royal highness, okay? Because right. Mark Burnett is, is the greatest, and he's the king. But I thought you meant Trump. We'll get into that. But the story that has been passed around – and again, mm -hmm. so many different cooks – were in the kitchen, at least in that first kind of initial brainstorm. There were a lot of now working showrunners that were sure. there when it first started that I guess were kind of charged with cracking the original format. But the version of the story I heard is that Zucker basically, Jeff Zucker at the time is running NBC Entertainment, has a meeting with Mark and Trump and says, look, the show is people competing to work for Trump. And that was basically like it. And he bought it off the log line. So... There's a big meeting that is set with Zucker where this is like the first real meeting where people are going to present the show because they're going to invest all this money. I'm not sure I know this story, but they're please gonna, continue. They're going to order the series. Yes. And this is like the first real meeting where they are going to pitch the network the ins and outs of the format and how it works. And the story that's been told to me is that Mark comes to the team about an hour before uh, Zucker is going to walk into the room and says, so here's what we have. We have all these people competing to uh, work for Donald Trump. All right. Jeff's going to be here in an hour. So uh, I'll be back in an hour and you guys are going to tell him uh, some ideas that we have for how the format actually works. And then they, and then people had to like come up with kind of the boardroom and everything like on the fly, like in an hour and how eliminations worked and all of that. Oh man, I'm the wrong person to ask. Cause that was like before my time. But you've never heard this version. I've of never actually heard that version of the show, the show origin story. Right. Um, um, so I don't know. It's an awesome story. Yeah. That's, I mean, and, and part of me believes half of it. Right. And then another part of me is like, no, like there's no way Mark would be that hands off. I yeah, on, I don't know, man. On the structure, because Mar Mark very much is involved in shaping, you know, how all these shows work. It doesn't feel exactly right to me, but that I don't know. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. Got it. So you were a challenge producer. I was a challenge producer. Yes. So mm -hmm. first in LA, coming up with sort of ideas for challenges for for season one, and then starting season two full time. Um, you know, actually producing those challenges and then going on to run that department. And that was just an education in so many things. Right. I mean, certainly it was an education in walking into big rooms, asking for outrageous things and actually <laughs> making them materialize. Because don't forget, like what we were doing starting in season two was going to major sponsors right. and saying, you know, give us millions of dollars to put reality show contestants in charge of your brands on national television. And by the way, you'll see the show when we're finished editing it. Right. And you're going to have no say in, yeah. in how we edit this or shape your product. Yeah. And right. yet. Right. Right. Yes. And it became the model. It became the model for placement in, in TV that didn't feel jammed down your throat. Um, yeah. And I think that was just due in large part to the creative of the show. Yeah. I lived in the being business the sector. right creative. Yeah. So, um, but man, that was a lot of fun.
uh, to to be a part of. So would ad sales at NBC ever come to you guys and say, hey, so this season, like in season three or four, Pontiac or whoever it is, GM wants to be in, you guys need to come up with a challenge in, to satisfy in, that? In my time in the early seasons of the show, it really mostly ran through the production company. Yeah. Um, that's obviously changed over time as networks have gotten much more involved in that. I right. mean, in large part, I think, because that show proved what a lucrative business model it could be. I don't right. think anybody saw that coming right. exactly, except for maybe Mark. And at the time, um, that was probably because companies like Burnett and yeah. the Revelies of the world were getting all of the benefit from the integration in, in, or a much bigger piece of the pie from integrations yes. uh, than you do now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, so obviously the production company was – they were incentivized to get a sponsor in every week that they could build a challenge around. Yeah, so we had a whole very large department, both for the show and for the company, that right. was really just explicitly doing that. And that's wow. actually something, I mean, you know, you and I both worked for two of the companies that did that the most. As well as anyone, yeah. Yeah, just sort of on the biggest scale and, and I think with the with the highest degree of sophistication. But it's never been quite like that era again. Yeah. I think once the once the networks decided that they really needed to control not just the money but the process of all of that. Yeah. Um nobody's operated with quite the freedom that we did in those days in terms of relationships with advertisers. So you stay on that show for a handful of seasons. Through and, season 5. And Mark then says, hey, why don't you come over here and work at the company full-time? I had a few sort of projects in between. I worked on some digital stuff. There was a project called Gold Rush with with AOL that was yes. a very sort of like yes. big, early, interactive of its time. Yeah. project. Um, then ended up on Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And then after that ended up in full-time development for Mark. But wait, there was a stretch though. Where was your f- screenwriting stretch where you had some – you had oh, some that was mostly prior. Ur- you had some urban comedies under your belt. I did, but that was that was way before that. But, I mean, please, but, but, but please tell me. We should inform oh, the listener. No, I mean, like as as you would probably guess from meeting me, I began my <laughs> career writing and ghostwriting urban comedies. Um, nothing that like got made, but you know, I got to work with yep. some luminaries of the hip hop world. But did you work that. with like? DJ, DJ Pooh was yeah. above mm-hmm. the, and, yep. and Ice Cube, who co-wrote yeah. Friday. I would say adjacent to Ice Cube, but actually with with Pooh. Did you do ghostwriting on any of the Friday? No, I wish I could or... claim credit for that, but no, no, okay. no, that so, wasn't me. So wait, so Friday has has come out well before this, and yeah. how do you find yourself sitting in front of DJ Pooh to collaborate? Um, so one of my early writing partners is a great guy called Marcus Morton, who mm-hmm. was uh, an A&R guy in the rap business. And, you know, one of my very early jobs was doing script coverage for him because he was a working movie producer at the time. I sort of found my way from being his coverage guy to being his writing partner. And we sold, I mean, a number of urban comedy scripts. So, you know, one with Pooh, several on our own. Um I wish they had gotten made because that would have been <laughs> awesome, and I think some of them are really good. But it was uh, that was that was actually the bulk of my we should, paid screenwriting career. We should probably for like your birthday one year or something. We should do like break a li- those out. We should do like a live reading. We should do like a table. I don't read. know, man. 
a table read of it. I think maybe not on this podcast, maybe somewhere with <laughs> yes. no microphones oh, no, or recording yes. devices, yes, but yes, yes. yes. Not for public consumption. No. no, no, no. All right. So, so you make your way over to fifth grader. Yep. At what point did they reach out to you to come in full time for Burnett? Uh, I started full time development for Mark in about 2007. So Roy Bank was running Mark's development at the time. And right. he ended up having a full enough slate that I became his sort of full time development guy. I mean, as right. you know, Mark runs things very lean. So that was, it was Roy and me, basically. Right. I mean, there were some others. Um, who who supplemented that at, at different points. And so I worked for Roy for, I guess, just over a year. And then when Roy left the company, Mark, as he is wont to do, gave the next guy on the bench the chance to step up. And in right. that case, it was me. Right, because Roy went over to go run Merv Griffin at the Correct. time. Correct, yes. And now here you are. You've yep. been working for Roy for a little bit over a year. Yep. And you came out of production. Yes. So now you're charged with finding new projects, pitching new projects. I mean, yes. wh- how did Mark explain the role to you? Um, or did he? I, I mean, I, it was a pretty just sort of like, you know what to do, go do it kind of pep talk. Um, but we also, there were some very specific things that we were accomplishing at that stage of the company's life cycle, um, including a big push into cable, which was which right. was new for new for Mark and new for me. Um, and I think just like the first moment where I had to produce a task on The Apprentice, that was a critical moment in my evolution as an executive, um, not least because Mark didn't have an agent. Right. So, you know, I just had to yeah. cold call, build all the relationships myself and just sort of, you know, get things going. I mean, I'll acknowledge when you call and you're, say, you're saying, I'm calling for Mark Burnett Productions, you get a call back. Right. So like, that bit of it was easier for me than it is for 99% of people. And, and that's just by virtue of Mark's name. Right. But we really did, I think, build a slate of pretty diverse programs pretty fast and had an interesting couple of years where we were really testing the limits of what we could do as a company. Now, Shark Tank and Voice, those were both under your administration. Over there, yes. Right? And those came along a little later in yeah. the administration. But yes, so Shark Tank, I mean... The three sort of big things that happened, you know, uh, just before I moved on from Mark Burnett were Shark Tank, The Voice, and The Bible. And, and right. I was sort of involved in the sale and development and production of the first two and in the sale and development of The Bible. But I wasn't there for the, right. you know, the huge success it eventually became. Yes. Uh, so Shark Tank, that yes. was a format. It was a f- very successful format. Yeah. From the UK. Yes. Who got it in front of you? Was it Scott Crew, the international, who just discovered it and got it over to you? Yes, Scott. Scott had identified it. There was a really nice relationship with Sony at that time, who were right. the rights holders to the format, and that was like at a number of levels: Holly Jacobs and Zach and Jamie and Steve Mosco, all the way up to sort of Howard Stringer at the time, who knew Roma. Actually. Now, how did how did they acquire it? <clears throat> um, Sony got that format. Boy, that's a good question, Jimmy. It started as a Japanese format right. called Office Tiger and then became <laughs> – I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Office Tiger was the very original. But the UK version was Dragon's Den? Dragon's Den. Right. But Dragon's Den was Office Tiger is so much better. Right. I mean they should all be called Office Tiger probably. <laughs> um, but uh, 
Yeah, how would Sony acquire an unscripted... Did they acquire the Japanese rights or the UK rights? I think they had the Japanese rights, which were from... that's the original. Yeah. So that must be the Sony connection, then. uh, I guess so, although I don't even think they were the original rights holder in Japan. In any event, they had it. There was something sort of put out to Scott that was like, hey, you know, poke through our catalog, and is is there something that you guys might want to adapt? If I watched Office Tiger right now... Yes. How much would it resemble what I know of Shark Tank, the American version? I don't think that much. I think Office Tiger was pretty distinct from, from what it became. But if you watched an original season of UK Dragon's Den, it wouldn't be that different. So the set, the, the setup, everything very similar. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I, the mechanics are essentially yeah. pretty well-baked. Did they do that on a stage or did they do that in an like, actual real boardroom The UK setting? version? Yeah. That's a great question. I think that was more of a sort of actual 360-degree environment. Yeah. Um, obviously, Shark Tank is shot on a set. Yeah. Because but... I've always wondered that. Like just <coughs> from the producing side, I've always wondered how the – well, I mean you, you can tell me – how the decision was made to go with a stage made to look somewhat like it could be a big office somewhere – but there's no audience. Yes. I mean, it's a rare type of set for television if you really stop and think about it. A, a stage shot show with no audience is kind of rare. Yeah, I think – I mean I I think that would be a great question for like John Sade and, and Vicky Dummer because yeah. they were so much involved in the look and feel of the show. And I think as much as it feels like an office, it's also clearly a network primetime set. Totally, yeah. And, and I yeah. think at the time – and even now, maybe for a broadcast network to just say, "Oh, let's find an office and put a jib in it," <laughs> like you know, yeah. uh, on certain platforms that would be totally fine. But I right. think for ABC and primetime, that just didn't feel like a thing you could do. Totally, totally, yeah, yeah. yeah. I will tell you just one like quick sidebar yes. on the Shark Tank set, um, and this is a good Jim Roush question. If you ever sit down with Jim Roush, would love to. Yeah, we spent a fair amount of time sussing out the possibility of like actual tanks full of actual sharks like like on set yes like in the background yes so like like dj Pooh's house like basically like dr evil's house i would say that that was really considered at some point oh yeah to have sharks swirling in the back oh yeah i I mean you yes absolutely okay that's a question that i would have to ask john today or jim rouse of how was it insurance issues it Did you turns know what, out to be really expensive to do that. And I'm like, sure. I mean, you, gotta, you, you have gotta, to feed them. Yeah, you got a like, shark guy. Yeah. Yes, then, there's a shark guy. And then where, where do they go in between shoots? Yeah. Like you got you to tra- travel the sharks in and travel them out. Yeah. You got PETA people calling ABC. All that. But still. Could you have done robotic sharks? Maybe. Could you have maybe With done movie? Freaking laser beams? Movie sharks. Um, okay, so voice. Yes. So voice is developed by DeMal. Correct. Overseas. Yes. It's actually sold to NBC directly by DeMaul, right, when it was pitched. Yes. And Paul Telegdi says, I got to call Burnett, Team Burnett, to produce this in the U.S. and run, yeah, run production I wasn't, through it. I wasn't there for that conversation either, but my understanding of it is that John also, at the time, wanted us to jump in and execute it. Because okay. Talpa had not been built up to what it is now. Right. And so they really needed somebody who could – like do this very big show on what was a pretty quick timetable, not right. the fifth grader timetable, which is the fastest timetable I've ever been on in terms right. of mounting a big show. Yeah, but but pretty quick given the circumstances. So I mean, but just in terms of a sliding doors of <laughs> of unscripted Hollywood business, right? 
if the voice doesn't go to NBC. Right. Yeah, I know. I mean, you just kind of like the, the domino effect yes. from there of where NBC is in the ratings, NBC's ability to launch new scripted shows because The Voice has been their launching platform for oh, a few I years Oh, I thought now. you were going to say something else, which is what would have been the fate of oh. Idol and X Factor, which also, of course, would have been yes. impacted if that hadn't been the case. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so. you mean even if The Voice had gone to Fox? Or not gone. Or not gone at all. Right. Yeah. But it also makes you wonder, like, if that show is on CBS – do we entirely look at CBS a different yeah, way? Don't know. You know, it's just really interesting to think that if Paul hadn't won yeah. that that bidding war, yeah, which I believe it was a bidding war. Yeah, right. I mean, but I think clearly in retrospect, right time, right place, perfect home, right decision maker, and you know. Now were um, you, now were you heavily involved when it was sold and set up, and now they've got a now they've got to cast their version of judges mm-hmm. here in the US that first season of judges yes were you involved in all those casting discussions i was involved um only in as much as uh, i had been talking to celo green already about some projects okay and he was the first to formally commit which was a big deal that's what that i wanted gave, to know yeah because that gave others the yeah. sort of confidence to commit cuz don't forget like how scary that seemed at the time that you're going to be doing a brand new music competition show idol is still at like if not at the peak of its dominance hugely dominant Mm -hmm. you knew x factor was coming like it really could have been embarrassing if it had been done wrong absolutely because idol was comprised of uh, you know simon cow who really didn't mean anything to the u.s public before idol right paul abdul who was you know like about five minutes past her prime as a performer and randy jackson who was mostly a behind the scenes guy they weren't current pop stars yep. on a broadcast television show yeah. and which came first did voice come first or did j-lo on idol i think voice came before j-lo on idol didn't it I would think so. Fire up the Google machine. Yeah, I would think so, though. But like, really, it broke new ground where the voice said, "Uh, we're going to get current, yes, top selling artists to be the face of our show now, not people that yep. were big ten years ago." So CeeLo was number one, and yes. then and then, and then who- Adam, and then Christina, and then Blake, and that was kind of a reemergence for Adam. Yeah, I mean, I think you know if you. If I mean, of course, Moon Five, Moon Five had their fans, but right. but they weren't as mainstream nearly yeah. as much before. I think he'd probably say that. I think so. I think he I found know. a whole new audience. Let's bring of, him in. Uh, a whole new audience of of Midwestern moms that never listened to Moon Five. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so the, that all came together super fast. There were some tweaks made to the format, although the Dutch format, right? You know remained in its essence intact. Yeah. You know, in, in all the important aspects, which are what are the three rounds and like how do yeah. the basic mechanics of the show work? Right. Um but yeah, I mean uh, and it's also live. A big Oh, I was going to say, yeah, the final rounds of course are live, but like, you know, the fact that that cast came on board, though there was a domino effect, it's also a, a tremendous credit to Mark's persuasive powers mm-hmm. that Yeah. You know, the, those artists were willing to take that risk. That's a really good point, though. Has he ever not converted on a signing meeting? Can you remember through your time a piece of talent that did say no to Mark Burnett? I mean, he got Sarah I, Palin. I cannot actually. That's a really crazy thing to say. You but did, you did no. Sarah Palin, Alaska. Yeah. I mean, like, and at that yep. time, Sarah Palin was like Sarah Palin. Like, yeah. Who? I mean, I can't think. Like, who else would, could he have approached that turned that guy down? 
It's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing because actually I, I like not blowing smoke at all. <laughs> I literally can't think of one where it's like, yeah, we really tried to get so and so, and then you know they just said no. And then I'm then, sure there's something, but like I just can't nothing, nothing what it top would be. of mind. And imagine the tag team now of trying to say no to Burnett and Paul Telegdi. If they were recruiting, oh no! I told I told a friend of mine who still works on The Voice because you know now that it's configured the way it is, and Mike Darnell is at Warner Horizon, who also have a piece of the show. Right. I said if there's ever a meeting between Mark, Paul, Mike, and John, I'm like I don't care. Like you Facetime me in secretly so I can (laughs) just be a fly on that particular wall. Oh, for sure. I there's a meeting. I remember from years ago and I was running development for Ben at Electus and you'd been running development for some time for, for Mark at that point. And it was at the, uh, it was at the, what the, the Lantana offices, mm-hmm. right? Um, what is that off of? Is that On P- Olympic and Sentinel, Olympic, basically. Olympic, yeah. yeah. So it was over in those offices at the time. I'm not sure how long you guys were in those offices, but I, me and Ben came over cause we had brought you guys this format and Basically, Ben and Mark just for an hour just kind of held court yep. with me and you. I don't know if you remember this meeting with me and you as like their audience. And it was one of the greatest meetings for me personally, just as a TV nerd and who always felt like even though I was running development for Ben at the time, I just always felt like I was more so just going to college. Right. You know, getting my Ben BA as, yep. as Howard Owens coined it. And in that conversation, I remember at one point Mark turns to me and you and he, he says, Ben. There has to be an easier way to make money than 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 what we're doing right now. I don't actually producers. recall this, but that's he hilarious. Said, he says, there has to be an easier way to make money. Ben, you and I, we can't even get our deals anymore. You and I can't even get our deals from what we got when you did Biggest Loser and I was doing Apprentice and when I first sold Survivor. They were talking about how it was harder and harder for young companies right. to, to even be built in the first place and to grow given all the rights that were now off the table for yep. the most part. And he looks at me and you at this point. And he says, you two, by the way, if you two ever wanted to like run your own companies and launch your own companies, you couldn't do it today. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't do it. Because again, like even the way shows are cash flowed, you know. That's depressing. How is, it, it, was, it was one of the greatest, but also one of the most demoralizing meetings yeah. is that I started doing the math and I'm hearing this from like the two godfathers uh, of the industry. And I'm like, God, you're kind of right. Like even if I, and then I got in the trenches and I realized like, thank God. IAC is backing Electus because even the payment schedules from cable networks yeah. don't even allow yourself to really cash flow a production. You've got to come out of your own pocket, and I've, you've heard stories of. Well, I was talking about this a bit on a on my panel today. Um, and in case you're launching this like seven months from now, we are recording at Real Screen West yes. here in here in Santa Monica. Um, I think it is really hard for young companies and for new creators. Um, and that's not great. It's not great for them, but it's also actually really not great for us. So the example I used is if the Fine Brothers come along tomorrow right. with React, what do we have that's alluring to say, come into this development pipeline that we've set up for reality TV right. as opposed to just put your stuff on YouTube and then you're going to be in Forbes in two years. Right. So, right. Uh, you know, I think, I think, we can all sort of point to that as, boy, isn't it tough for, you know, young creators to make it in our system. Like, guess what? Young creators are bypassing our system, yeah, which is not such a good thing. Oh, no. As, as someone who has tried to go after a pretty prominent YouTuber in the yeah. past, 
and we we did that whole exercise and we signed the YouTuber and we went and pitched and we get an offer from the TV network finally. And then the YouTuber and his management look at that offer and they're like, wait a second. Yeah. We never realized we make way more money just doing our YouTube channel oh, yeah. than what you know MTV2 is going to pay me to do episodically yeah. for months of work. Right. I can lay around in my pajamas all day and bank eight videos at my leisure and take the next three months off or whatever it is yep. and be my own boss and not have to respond to anybody's notes. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It is interesting to think that all the young storytellers coming up right now in high school and going to USC, how much do they really feel they need the conventional uh, television landscape to pay their bills? And well, how many of them are just, I'm just going to do my own thing because everybody else before me has. I mean, not that long ago, there was a small handful of companies that had the technological capacity to distribute video to millions of people. And now anyone with a phone can distribute video to millions of people. Right. Like it's a, I don't even know what to compare it to. It's like, yeah. as if tomorrow we all had a, like app where we could just design a car and then the car would show up. Like the, the means of production have been completely democratized. Right. And I think it is informing everything we do as professional content creators and distributors, which I feel like, I don't feel like it has hurt the unscripted community as much yet, but I feel like it is hurting the comedy landscape more because I feel like it's much easier for people on their own, on low budgets. Yep. With how great cameras are these days, and how savvy you know the the younger audience is to create their own single camera comedies for the most part that don't look all that different yeah. from what you might see on cable. Drama, it's really hard for them. Drama to is really hard, and I don't feel like yes. you really can on your own dollar independently be an do indie a scripted drama. drama, like an immersive scripted yeah. drama. I agree with you, you because there are just that. expenses that you yeah can't. But for the, that it's really hard to undertake yeah. as an independent producer. But for a scripted comedy, you know, yeah. that you can make bite size or sketches. Yep. Really, that's that's the uh, I know the sector of entertainment right now that I think is hurting the most from from digital. It's not really reality yeah. or documentary. We're flourishing the most, depending on how you look at yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But not really documentary and not really unscripted yet. No, but why? There's no reason that can't happen. I just wonder: is it because? I don't know. Are you really going to watch a doc series about housewives on YouTube? I mean, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I, I can't think of any any shows that mirror reality TV on digital. That you... that feels like yet to me. Yes. Oh, sure. We'll no. See. Yeah. 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 Let's sit down in a year. Oh no, I think it is a yet. I think it is a yet. Um, all right. So you move on from Burnett. Yes. I remember. I am on. I am in the King of the Nerds control room. Yes. Season one. And uh, all of a sudden you pop up and I'm like, hey, and not in the cast, weirdly. <laughs> and I, and, I, and I'm like, wait, I'm like, why, why is the head of Mark Burnett development yeah. in our control room? Like, and I know David, I'm like, hey, what's up? And you're like, hey, and you're like so happy to like be there and everything. And I'm like, hey, what, what, what are you doing? What, 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 what's up? Yeah. And you're like, oh, you don't know. And I'm like, no, I don't know. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm like, I'm running unscripted for, for Turner now. And I was so happy. I was so happy, just one for you, but so happy also that there was somebody from an unscripted background that was now at the network that had bought our show. Yeah. Uh, even though the Turner team was the greatest group of people at a network I'd ever worked with at that point. Like yeah. Michael Wright, Kathy yeah. Busby, Lila McCarthy, and Holly. Like, awesome, awesome, yep. awesome. But there wasn't anybody in those me – Brett White's. Yeah. There wasn't anybody in those meetings at the time that was like a full-on unscripted in-the-trenches person. Yeah. 
when you showed up there, what was the charge for you? What was the mandate when you got that gig? Well, you know, when I first came aboard at TNT and TBS, it was to do, if not volume unscripted in the way that Discovery or A&E do it, um, a pretty healthy slate of unscripted primetime originals for both networks. And, and the goal was to try to build on the primetime scripted and acquisitions brands that were already working. So right. King of the Nerds was actually a good and successful example of that because it was an unscripted sort of mirror image of Big Bang Theory and done in a very clever way. And like, I think with, um, with a good deal of creative integrity. So not everything we tried worked. Like it's certainly <laughs> as anybody who's tried to start up unscripted at a scripted network right. can tell you there are inherent challenges, like not just about the culture of the places that you're doing it, but actually more so about why is the audience coming to this network in the first place. Right. Um, so I think we put on some great shows. We put on certainly some shows that worked. And then, um, and then when Kevin Riley started, the mandates, of course, changed quite a bit. I mean, he has yeah. uh, a very different, very creative vision for where he wants to take those networks. But my job changed a lot at that time. Right. And certainly the notion that we were going to be doing, you know, zillions of unscripted hours uh, right. was already probably on the way out at that point. Right. Um, but, but certainly uh, – Kevin is being much more sort of precise about how he uses unscripted and when. And Samantha B, that was developed under your watch. Um, I can claim no credit for that at all. All oh, okay. of that goes to Tom Hinkle, who Got had it. the relationship with uh, with Sam and Jason and brought her in. So that was developed through the comedy scripted, scripted team. Yes. I would be robbing our audience, by the way. Yeah. If I didn't just geek out with you for a second. Please. On, on Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Yeah. So we did the hero together. We did, and then I and then I left Electus, and then you guys did uh, a, a second season with Dwayne in a more standalone type yes. format. But you and I both went down to Panama for the hero yep. and got to you know hang out with Dwayne for for a little bit, yep. and, and through the process of developing that show, I have always told people, and I don't, I don't think me and you have ever talked about The Rock. No, but I've always described to people that Dwayne Johnson as a as a dude. I feel like you always kind of look for at least one flaw, right? You know, in someone like yeah. that, like so, like I can go home at night and at least tell my wife, like, oh no, The Rock's amazing, but when it comes to this thing, he's like, yeah, you know. he was so perfect, yep, in every way, yes. every pitch meeting we went to, yep, Dwayne would remember the name of the assistants, every room he walks into, he's the nicest. He's yeah. the most charismatic. Yep. He's the best looking. He's the best athlete. Yes, and by the way, a hell of a host. Like what he was doing for yep. us off memory and running the room and seeing things like this guy's actually just a legitimately good host. I think what you're trying to say is if it's necessary that we elect a reality <laughs> television star as president of the United States. It should be this one. Yes. And I'm pretty sure he would clobber <laughs> the competition right now if he did run right now. But, I mean, when you got the work with Dwayne, yeah. did you take away the same man crush I did? Yeah. I mean, he's a rem he is a remarkable human being and performer, and, like, I really believe he could do anything. I mean, yeah. I was only half-joking in terms of what <laughs> I just said. Like, he, he's... He is the, the work ethic and the humanity and the sense of humor and just the sheer skill yeah. that he has at what he does is pretty remarkable. And really always having a great understanding of the big picture. Yep. 
you know, and completely producible. Yep. Which you would never expect. I mean, at the time we did that, he was still the number one box office star in the world. It wasn't like we caught him just before. Oh, no, that. no. He was very and, much the number yeah, one box office and star. And headlining WrestleMania and had lots of other stuff going on and yet was like as fully present as you could want somebody to be. Can so. I can I tell you the one note the one note that I'm I'm actually proud of? Yeah, please. Uh when we went and pitched you guys. Yeah. So we're going into Turner and I tell him just before the meeting, I said, What I want you to do is look at Michael Wright square in the face and say, Michael, me and you are going to be at that upfront together presenting this show to all your, your brands or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and I guarantee you that's going to, that's going to work. And he did it. He delivered it he, like in the middle of the pitch. He's like, and Michael, you and I, we're going to be on that stage together at your upfront, man. And we're going to be pushing this thing. And the advertiser is going to go crazy. And I remember seeing Michael's eyes light up, but here's a testament to Michael, Wright. When we went and pitched that over the course of three days to all the different networks, Every network meeting was kind of the same where we do this big spiel. And obviously, I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're super excited to be in the room with The Rock. Yeah. But, you know, we're doing all the selling. Michael, before we can even get a word out, first part of the meeting, he starts off the meeting and he starts pitching The Rock about why he should be with Turner. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, Michael Wright is the greatest for, That's under, really funny. for understanding can, yeah. where he where the network probably stood. Yeah against yeah. the broadcast networks yeah. that we're probably taking The Rock to. And he was the only one with the presence of mind to say, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing first yeah. before you start. Because obviously I already know who you are. Well, I think that's um, both indicative of his awareness, which is always really keen, and and something people should do more of. I mean, I think whether you're right. ostensibly on the sell side or ostensibly on the buy side, you're always selling. Right. Yeah. Well, so, well let's go back to that. So now okay. you've... You made the jump from seller yep. to buyer. Tell me the things now that you're back to being a seller. Yes. Because now here you are at ITV. We haven't, yep. we haven't even talked about that yet. You left Turner recently. You go yep. over to ITV. Now you're back to the selling side. So now that you're away from buying, yeah. can you tell me the things that you disliked the most about buying or what were the biggest differences, like the pluses and minuses? Because um, I, I, I play this game all the time sure. in, my, in my head. of I, I wouldn't what, call this a, a dislike exactly mm-hmm. but it's and i've been talking with a few people here at the conference about this um but the biggest people people cons- that are people that are thinking about leaving their well, current jobs right. yes should i list them? <laughs> um no the biggest constraint of course on the network side is that you can only develop for one brand right. which is the brand of the network that you're working for right like the freedom of the sell side with all its pressures and all of the volume of work, which is, I am now reminded, much higher um, just in general, uh, is is the freedom of the sell side is you can develop for everybody's brand. So right. you can follow your nose wherever it leads as long as there's a buyer or two who you think might like the project. Right. When you're working for a network, you really better love the brand of the network you're working for because that's all you do all day. Right. Um, so that was, I think the real truth of that was not mm-hmm. something that I had anticipated. And like with Turner, I felt really lucky because those were big, expansive brands. Like I, I think we put on shows that you could feel good about sort of having yeah. worked on. Um, I didn't have any objections to it, but even at, even at Turner, there were lots of things I would see come in and say, that is an amazing show and I can't do it. Right. Like it has to feel frustrating to take a pitch yep. and you're like, I know exactly how that can work. Yep. And there's actually something personally I feel I could offer a thousand percent to make this project better, but yes. it will not fit the filter of what we're doing. Correct. Here. Right. 
Yeah, I would say that's the toughest. Just from a sheer sort of like being a creative person standpoint, that's the toughest bit. I talked to a buddy of mine that went uh, from selling to buying back to selling. And he told me the one thing, though, was that as a seller, you really have no knowledge of how other people go about their business and pitch. Right. You you kind of really only know how you and your your mentor, if you have one, pitch. So for you now, being on the buying side for the first time, having everybody come in to see you, were you like shocked at how – many bad pitches are taken out around town or um no i think everybody's trying really hard to like (laughs) to to be original and put their best foot forward and like while we all have sort of pitch horror stories and they're fun to trade like it's few and far between everybody is certainly trying their best i will say now looking back um the ritual of the pitch, mm-hmm. which is we come in, we sit down, you know, small talk. We play, there's small talk, we play an eight minute piece of tape. Like that has begun to feel very inefficient yeah. to me. Yeah. Like I think if you have 22 minutes of a network executive's time, as much of that as you can use to engage in dialogue yeah. is probably your benefit. Right. And, and so I, I even think like there's some virtue to just saying, here's what the project is. If you're interested, I can send you the tape. Now, like right. if, if, if it's really character driven stuff, there's probably benefits still to playing the tape in the room. Right. But you know, one thing I've been thinking about, and I'm sorry to get a little bit sort of um, obscure, but as I get back into the cell side, there's a, uh, there's something happening in education right now where private academies like Khan Academy, don't worry, this goes somewhere are, <laughs> are starting to say, the way we've set up what's done in the classroom versus what's done at home is all wrong, hmm. at least for where we are right now in terms of technology. So it was always like you do a lecture in the classroom and then you do your work at home. Right. And really what we should do is collaboratively do our work in the classroom so you can ask the teacher and your fellow students class questions right. and then watch a video of the lecture at home. Yeah. And that made total intuitive sense to me. Right. And I think it's actually applicable to how we do our business, which is when you're in the room with another human being, try to spend as much time as you can interacting with that human being. Right. And then if they're interested in the wares that you're selling, they'll take their time to actually review those. I'll right. see how that works out for me, but it's certainly something I've been thinking a lot about right. as I go back into the sales so process. I, like just, so from like a practicality standpoint yep. for a pitch, it could be show them one minute of the eight minutes. Sure. Pause it and yeah, say, now, say let me, now let me get into everything else and yeah. you can watch the rest of your Yeah, leisure. and ask me questions. Yeah. Or yeah, if you yeah. want me to keep playing, I can. But like I think time is the most precious resource in our business and in life in general. Right. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out how to utilize it better and when I do get my chances. But you – tell me your perspective from being inside the network. How important or how how much more did the projects with video that clearly – painted the whole picture and walked everybody through the format, your bosses basically yeah, got through more so than a, a piece of paper. Not as much as you would think. Okay. So really it, in the end, it's the idea and not always the presentation. It, it was where I was. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It was the idea. And I think also the components. Yeah. Like right. the package. You didn't need to make a tape to sell the hero. Right. Okay. So now ITV. Okay. Yes. So here you are. You are back on the selling side. You are president. Yes. But what is, what is the title? I'm president of ITV Entertainment. And that is your own development group. It is not 
the ITV America as a whole that, you, that you work in connection with. So listeners, please imagine a virtual org chart, and I'll try to explain this. Yeah. ITV Entertainment is a standalone production company right. where we will create, develop, sell, and produce fabulous programming for a wide variety of platforms. Right. It is part of the larger ITV Americas group, which is overseen by Brent Montgomery, Adam Scher, David George, and Ed Simpson. And that group includes everything from Left Field to Gurney to High Noon to Think Factory. So there's 10 companies in the larger group. I run one of them. Right. Um, which is ITV Entertainment. We produce Hell's Kitchen. We produce The First 48. We produce Rich Kids of Beverly Hills. And hopefully by the time people are listening to this, we produce <laughs> other stuff. Does this mean that you get first dibs on ITV UK network formats that they have the rights to? Um, that's been traditionally true. I think as we go forward as a group, everybody within the group should have their shot at the formats. They should end up with, with the right company for them. That's very fair of you to say. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the mandate. And, like, I, you know, I love that pipeline. It's a pretty incredible resource to have right um but you know we also need to generate original ip and and you know be a creative shop in our own right how often are you talking to folks in the uk pretty frequently and i'm actually going there next week are you really yeah have you been there yet no this will be my first to see the whole operation over there yeah i'll be in the uk and then in germany to meet the other non-uk itv companies that's awesome yeah it'll be fun and how many people are now on the team uh we have on our development team now six executives Myself, Jess Sebastian, who's our SVP, right. uh, VPs Jane Usum and Eric Hoberman, and then managers Joanna Studa Baker and Sarah Downey. And that's it. Got it. And then is there any crossover? Do you still want to scratch that itch for scripted? Um, there's a totally separate scripted division right. run by a fantastic gentleman named Philippe Magret, um, who do the big scripted through ITV Studios. And they, they do Aquarius on NBC. Yeah. I mean, they, they have, they're, they're a real. They're a real legit studio unit um, creating big shows. Um, I don't know. I I like consuming scripted TV. I don't. I, I think if something really special that I had to do came along, I would do it. But it's not top of mind. We'll do we'll do the script reading. Okay, good. Yes, that'll be that'll be great. Uh, David Allenberg, thanks for joining me, man. Thanks, Jimmy. This has been fun. Are Appreciate you going to do more of these? Uh, not today. Okay. But, but, but yes, uh, there's going to be eight in the initial. Uh, okay, I want your advice. Yes. Should I do something that normally podcasts never do and just release all eight at once, Netflix style? Or should I do it once a month like I've been talking about with Real Screen? I don't know why you would do it once a month. Right? Yeah, just release it. Just release them all, right? Release yeah. them all once, right? So yeah. people can binge and then six yeah. months later. Because nobody does that with podcasts. No. Right? Yeah. Even cereal isn't all at once, right? Right. I actually don't know. No, cereal's not all at once. Right? Cereal, they... They're in stages. Yeah. So why, why couldn't you just put them all out and then you wait could. six months? And, right? You totally should. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to think about this. So yes, I will be doing more. Okay, good. Uh, but the first round's going to be about... Whatever keeps you off the streets selling stuff, because I don't need more competition. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm very much... By the way, my, my goal is to one day get Burnett in the chair. Oh, I bet he would do it. We should, do you think so? Yeah. I don't feel like he doesn't have the time to entertain. No, no. I think he... Really? Yeah, you should ask. I mean, I think there's like a PR apparatus around him now. There didn't Probably really a used to be. Fairly big one. I had yeah. Barry Posnick in yeah. for an episode. Okay. So I feel like that's like maybe baby steps. Okay. Uh, you, Barry, put in a good word. All right. I remind him we share a birthday. Okay. You know? Yeah. I share a birthday with Mark. I Burnett. bet you could do. All right. 
I don't know. Work it out. Are you going to interview Ben? Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Ben's one of the first ones. Leslie Greif. Great. Uh, Sharon Levy. Uh, Vinnie Malhotra from Showtime. Super. Uh, Jane Latman from ID. Oh, oh, Heather Olander uh, sat down with her, USA and Sci-Fi. Yep. Uh, so it's a good group of, like, the first eight, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think Telegdi Burnett, yeah. Pelagian for the next round would be awesome. Yeah, and then get an agent just to see what you can get him to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not going to get anything genuine from an agent. <laughs> Thanks, David. All right, thank you.